Father, we're grateful that you are perfect in all your ways, and you're such a loving Father. It isn't by virtue of our faith or our strength or any other things that we bring. We're kind of like the uh, situation where Jesus fed the 5,000. There were just a couple of loaves, and there were some few small fish, and you were able to take that and uh, provide a feast. And so, Father, we just pray that with the hearts that we bring to you today, that you would not only nourish us, but you'd be able to take our faith and take our life for Jesus Christ and multiply it in this community for his sake. And we thank you now in his name. Amen. Well, I am going to start out with a joke I really can't tell anymore. Always fair to give yourself a, a good challenge. Because as of 1978, this joke didn't make any sense anymore. The joke was... Um, why don't they name hurricanes after men? And the answer was, have you ever heard of a hemicane? But that no longer works since 1978. And they've come up with a whole different scheme of things. I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but if they ever have 21 storms in a year, they go to the Greek alphabet which some of us know and love. Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, Epsilon, Zeta, Eta, Theta, Yoda, Kappa, Lambda, Mu, Nu, Zaya, Krama, Kron, Tai, Upsilon, and then there's sounds and then Omega. Okay, I get it. Anyway, it's been a while. Um, so anyway, the reason I started with that is because would anybody here be interested to know that right now there is a depression in the Gulf that has a 20% chance of getting bigger, and it's headed right for Brownsville. Yay, Brownsville, right? Yeah. But it's probably not going to be anything. And then there are... Now, I know if I say that, there will be a couple people who really like hurricanes or are really aware of hurricanes, and they will perk up. But this next bit of information will be even more interesting. Right now in the Atlantic Basin, there are two systems coming our way that have a bigger chance of developing into something, but they don't know if that's going to happen. But, you know, the thing is, the minute I would mention something like that, there would be certain people who would say, you know what? Hmm. Um, maybe I need to keep an eye on that. Or maybe I need to go out and buy some gas for my generator. Or maybe I need to call my friends in Dallas and say, hey, what are you doing in two weeks? Do you have any room up in your house? And I think... The possibility exists, too, that there would be some people in here who would actually, during the message, get out their cell phones and don't do it. Don't even give in to that. But the, the, the whole point of all that is this. That information creates a context. And that context, depending upon who we are and how important the information is to us, it actually determines uh, things that we do, it, it starts to move our hands and our feet and our minds, and we start doing stuff about it. And context this morning is going to be very important because we're going to be talking about what on the surface could be some very controversial uh, verses having to do with women and submission and that. And I'm going to say that the context really is everything. Ever since... Uh, Adam and Eve, when God spoke to Adam and Eve and the serpent, 
there has been a context in life that really frames all of life. And that context is the plan of redemption that a son would be given that would win, who would win the day. And everyone in the line of faith that you see in Genesis, they have lived in that context. That has been important to them. Now, our problem is we allow that kind of stuff to become faded and we don't, you know, it's just hard for us to keep our minds on this stuff. But the coming of a Savior, the coming of Christ, has always been the context of this life. And what that should mean then is that certain things that we would maybe consider important otherwise, they have to come within this framework that God has made. Maybe they're not as big, or maybe we just shouldn't give them the importance that we do because we have no other thing to think about. If we knew that a Category 5 hurricane was coming, there would be a lot of things you would not worry about that you maybe have been worrying about all this week. You would worry about other things, and appropriately so, right? Because that would define some very important things in your life at that point. And when we look at Scripture, that is exactly the same case. So, what I'm going to do, um, what we're going to do so that we can understand this passage a little bit better, is I'm going to actually work through it backwards. And I'm going to start with verse 7 and work down to verse 1. And the reason I'm going to do that is because built into what Peter is talking about is the coming of Christ. Built into what Peter is talking about is something that is actually fulfilling prophecy. And those things need to be held right up front so that we can really understand what Peter is kind of getting at. And it puts what he says about women in a perspective that is important for us. So if you have a Bible... Uh, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. And because I'm from Milwaukee, we'll be looking at them in the wrong order, but we'll see what happens there. Now, just for some fun facts about this, um, Peter is writing this later in his life to Christians who appear to be going through persecution. The one thing that you know about the book, book of 1 Peter is that the word suffering runs all the way through the book. But it's suffering in the context that they were actually living for Christ. And so Peter is trying to bring that into the idea of why they're suffering and what they should be looking toward and what they should be expecting. Just to also understand Peter in how he is um, approaching the material here, um, if you looked at chapter 1, just for a second, and you looked at verse 7, it says, may be found to result in praise and glory at the revelation of Christ. The idea being is that Peter is talking right away about the fact that Jesus is coming back. The revelation, the revealing of Jesus Christ. Uh, in verse 5 in chapter 1, he talks about a... Um, Salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is in the context. Uh, and don't turn there, but in chapter 2, verse 11, he also mentions um, uh, being sojourners, the fact that this is not our home. 
um, that Christ is coming. In chapter 4, verse 7, he says, The end of all things is at hand. And chapter 5, verse 1, he says, um, Witnesses of the sufferings of Christ as well as partakers in the glory that is going to be revealed. The only thing I'm trying to make clear here is that the context of what Peter is saying is the fact that Jesus is coming again. This is why they should have hope. This is why they should understand in a certain way what they're having to go through now and the way they need to live their lives in the Roman Empire, but also on earth. And I think that has something to do for us, too. This is the context of life. Jesus is coming back. We, we glory in the fact that he came the first time to save us. But we know he's coming back. And see, what's so, infer- what's so infer- interesting right here is that Peter isn't saying this to be motivational to these people. In other words, he's not like a, a seminar Speaker, and let's pump the people up and bring in something maybe from outside that's extraneous to the context. This was not extraneous for Peter's life. When Peter and Andrew came to Christ, they were looking for the Christ. That was part of who he was. When Andrew hears from John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the very next day, Andrew runs, not 75 miles north, but in that area, And he gets Peter, and what does he say to Peter? We found the Messiah. People were looking for the Messiah. Four to six of these guys were already probably disciples of John. That was part of who they were. And when Jesus taught these guys how to preach, what was the very simple gospel message? The kingdom is coming, therefore repent. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom is still coming. And how important is that kingdom? After Jesus rose from the dead, it said over the next 40 days He appeared to the disciples, speaking to them of the kingdom of God. You know, that says to you, if you're perceptive, that even after Jesus was crucified and raised again from the dead, God is still going to be giving the kingdom to the Jews because the boys come to Jesus just before He leaves before he ascends, and they say to him, will God deliver at this time the kingdom to Israel? Jesus doesn't say, oh man, I've been talking for 40 days and you didn't get that right. No, he says, it's none of your business when the Father has determined that to happen according to his own authority. It's going to happen. It's going to come. And when they saw Jesus... Go up into the clouds. What did the angels say to him? This same Jesus who you saw ascending here will come in exactly the same way. These men lived their lives in anticipation of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. They didn't know when, but they knew it was going to happen. And John mentioned a couple of weeks ago in a message that in the short amount of time that, that Paul spent with the Thessalonians... Boy, did he give them a lot of great scripture about the rapture and about the coming of Christ and the man of sin. And This is how these guys lived. We tend to, just because of the sleepiness of life, forget some of that stuff. And it is vitally important. It is important to this context, but it is also important to how each of us live our lives every day. And we're, you know... It's sort of like we are weathermen, maybe for each other, and we are saying, we are forecasting, because it's already in the forecast, He's coming, and we cannot forget that. 
It has everything to do with the way we live our lives every day. It has everything to do with how we order our lives and we follow God. It has everything to do with how we purpose our lives and even together as couples. So let's look at chapter 3, verse 7. It says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, all of this is working to the very end of that, that verse, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Isn't that great? Now, this is where you got to ask, guys, how intentional are we about our praying? What in the world are we praying for? Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. I hope my wife is happy when she wakes up in the morning. You know, those are real prayers. Does God expect us to be praying for great things? Does He expect us to have a prayer life to move great boulders? Does He expect us to have a prayer life that is endeavoring in the mission to do stuff? And the answer here is, what do you think? Of course He is. And so, you know, for a lot of guys, it's like, oh, I pray, you know, I pray, you know, because that's what I do. I'm a Christian. I pray. But what are you praying for? Is the coming of Christ, is the mission on earth, is this time really that important that we pray and we pray together for great things? Now, just so you know, I'm not making this up. Because I am a preacher, right? And I'm given to that sometimes. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The end is at hand. What are you praying for? You don't want your prayer life to be trashed. You don't want your prayer life to become invaluable. You don't want your prayer life to become weakened. Because what we're doing right now is too important. And you know, guys, it says, and the Plymouth Brethren love this verse, right? Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Uh, Sometimes almost as a justification for being small. What that verse is talking about is the mission. Because this is what Jesus says in the entire context. He says that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, my Father will give it to them. Well, God, well, we can agree on this. The Texans ought to have a good season, right? Two or three of us can agree on that, right? No? Okay. How about the Rangers? Oh, no. How about the Astros? How about anybody? The point is, two or three agreeing on earth about the mission, about seeing people come to Christ, about seeing things happen in such a way that the gospel can become open, that there are inroads into neighborhoods, that people are being saved, that that our youth are being raised up and become disciples into the next generation. That is big stuff. And I seldom in a prayer meeting here, guys say, you know, this is what we really, really, really need. And you know, the thing is, I mean, we were talking a couple of weeks ago to the kids about spiritual armor. You know, we're doing the thing with the, um, 
the infinity stones and that, but it, it's just basically um, uh, dis, uh, spiritual disciplines. But one of the things that we talked about was the fact that that girdle of truth, you know, people don't even think about that baby. You know, if you're in a sword fight, the easiest way to kill a person is in their thigh, not in their gut. That's why they had this leather girdle to protect them. And the thing is, areas of truth, we live, guys, too much by ourselves. And what happens in our lives is something will come in, and whether it's pornography or it's just, you know, listlessness, or it's you get in a, a, just a, a bad way of thinking. We're not around enough guys to help us and bring us back together. And therefore, I often wonder about the guys who come into a prayer meeting, not here, but other places where I've been. Are they coming in spiritually fit to pray so that their prayer life is effective? Because see, what verse 7 is saying here in chapter 3 is so that your prayer life may not be hindered, may not be weakened, may not be held back. Is that a value? Because the rest of this verse is telling you how that happens, how that can happen. You know, we we think of big sins out there. What about just not respecting or honoring your wife as being the thing that takes your legs out from under you so that your prayer life is ineffective if, in the first place, your prayer life means something to you? So, it says this, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to kind of let you guys do some of the legwork on this one. Uh, You can explore this at home, but I want to go to the part of this verse that is probably the most important. It says, Live with your wives in the ESV here, in an understanding way. Now, you may have in a considerate way. And what I'm going to tell you is the Greek and the old King James Version got it right. According to knowledge. Live with your wife according to knowledge. Now, we have to define that. But, you know, it's just like, oh, Lord, you know. I mean, I had enough things swimming in my head. Now I've got to have knowledge about my wife and everything. I know, right? What an assignment. It's like, God, tell me to go out and, and swim with piranhas or something like that. You want me to understand my wife? There's a story about a guy who was in an antique store, and he found an Arabian lamp. I, I think this is true. And um, he polished up that that lamp and a genie came out. And the genie says to him, I'm going to give you one wish. My first response is, cheap genie. Anyway, he's going to give him one wish. And this guy, he thinks for a second, he says, you know what? I have relatives who live in Hawaii. And the flight to Hawaii is just awful. Could you build a bridge from L.A. to Hawaii so I could just drive it? Well, and the genie says, you know, I'm all power, I, I'm all powerful, I can, I, I can do stuff, but you know, do you know what you're talking about? This is 2,500 miles over the ocean. The depth of the ocean has to be taken into consideration. The size of the pillars has to be taken in, 
consideration. The storms and all the havoc at sea, all the things that can happen. He says to the guy, look, is there something else you could wish for? And the guy says, well, yeah, yeah. You know, I would really love to understand my wife. I would like to understand her moods and, 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 and these innuendos she's always hitting me with and why she says what she says and what really motivates her and the things that I can't understand and all that. And the genie says, so how many lanes are you thinking for that bridge? What in the world is this talking about here? with regard to knowledge. And guys, I'm just going to say this. I think this is true of all of us in this room, men and women, but I'm going to apply it here. I think that it is the knowledge of the Word of God. It is the knowledge of the world we live in. It is the knowledge of what God is doing in the world. What is the framework? What is the context? He is coming back. There is something happening right now that is extremely dangerous, worse than a Category 5, worse than Thanos and his snapping and all that junk, right? I mean, the souls of men and women and children are in the balance, and given all of that, live with your wife with knowledge, according to knowledge. Put these things together. And you know, I'm just going to say here, this, guys, again, this is why we need one another. Because nobody is fit for this stuff. If we're not together and we're not encouraging one another, we're lost. You know, um, this week in the one year, or last week in the one year Bible, I want to apologize to all the parents of teenagers right now, um, suggesting that the kids last week should start reading the one-year Bible because it was the Song of Solomon. Oy vey. Um, you know, and I know you're thinking, yeah, Song of Solomon. I mean, you know, this is a way to get the middle schoolers to read the Bible, right? No. And uh, the Song of Solomon is all wild hormones and body parts and stuff like that. And guess what, guys? It's not. It's very interesting. We had a discipleship group here a couple Saturdays ago. And after the first couple of jokes, you know, to get the ha-ha out of our system and everything, this is why it's important for you to read the Bible every day and read through the Bible every year. Why does she have two nightmares? What are those two nightmares about, guys? Um, why is the marriage relationship likened to a garden or like a vineyard? Did you realize that you're making a garden? I've been, I've been around some Christians. Their garden looks like the Garden of Mordor. It's a wasteland. Why does she say to him, why does she say to Solomon, catch for us the little foxes that ruin the vineyard? What are those things in your relationship? Why does she say to Solomon, I wish you were like a brother to me. I wish I was like a signet that was locked onto your arm. Why does she say that? See, those are all things that God has written there for every one of us. And I don't know about you, but that spoke to my heart. The Word is full of God's reminders through the Holy Spirit 
of us needing to nurture our marriages. So I guess what I'm saying here in this, in this part is that we really need to help one another, guys. If God is holding us up as being leaders in our relationship, we need to be able to pray. We need to understand what's happening in the world. We need help. I need help uh, to keep my focus. And part of that focus is I need to respect my wife. I need to love my wife. In all of this, I need to keep in mind what is happening here. And if I don't, I hurt myself. And I'm not going to be as effective for Jesus Christ as I want to be. But this context here goes even deeper in terms of talking about God's plan in the world. So look at verses 5 and 6. Oh, you're going to love this one. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Holy moly, right? In this day and age? But see, I didn't write it. That's what I feel good about. God wrote it. And I'm just going to tell you, you know, because we need to get right to the heart of this is that if this is talking about Abraham and Sarah, that ought to say something to you, that Peter chose this as the example. Because whatever it meant by Sarah submitting has to do with the story of Abraham and Sarah. And whatever it means about not being terrified, and we'll talk about that in a minute, that had to do with Sarah and Abraham too. And since these things are all applied to her, we need to understand what is happening there. So who are Abraham and Sarah? At the point in history where God calls them, the entire plan of redemption as we can see it is squarely resting on their shoulders. God has made a promise of a coming Redeemer. He has made a coming uh, a promise of a coming people who would come from Abraham, and of that people, a Redeemer would come. And Sarah was part of that too. It says right in the text here, she had that hope. They are both, they are two people on the earth at this crucial point in time, living with a mission, living with a purpose. And they knew about it. This wasn't something that was hidden from them. This wasn't something they only occasionally thought about. They thought about it every day. And one of the reasons God, one of the things God used to keep it in front of them was she couldn't get pregnant. They had the promise. They were there for 25 years before she had Isaac. This promise of hope, this mission that they were on, You realize as you read the Old Testament, every now and then something will pop up. When Noah is born, his dad said, maybe this one will help us. And God comes directly to Abraham and he says, this is what I'm going to do. Leave this city, leave this country, go to Canaan, I'm going to make a people of you. And from that people, all nations will be, there will be a seed and all nations will be blessed. That is the greatest promise, one of the greatest promises in redemptive history, and it's resting on the shoulders of this couple. You know, what's so interesting about this is it says, 
I mean, these are real people, right? Waking up every day, uh, waking up in a in a, a foreign land, realizing that God wanted them there, realizing they had a mission, and they got weak. And they got scared, I'm sure. You know, what's so interesting in Romans chapter 4, it says, No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, this Abraham. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. So what happened with Hagar? He never doubted that God was going to deliver on the promise. But in that moment of weakness, they became confused about the means. Because it didn't look like Sarah was going to be able to have the baby. By the way, who suggested the whole baby thing? Was that Abraham or Sarah? Sarah. She had a hope. And she had a hope. And she hoped in the promise, I think, just as much as Abraham did. Now, as the guy, he was trying to keep that alive. He was trying to keep them on mission. You know he was out there praying every day, right? But I mean, in 25 years, imagine this. But what happens at the end? God delivered just like they always thought He would. And the point here is that she might have doubted a little bit, but she didn't doubt entirely. She could have become terrified. The word terrified here is the idea of fearing being terrified. It's like fearing fear. It's like having a phobia for having the world crash in on you. It's almost like a double, a double word. But the point being is that if you don't have a mission, if you're not anchored in the hope of God, ladies, then what can happen is you live in fear of the bottom falling out of your life. And she could have easily believed that, but she never did. And that's why it says, you are her daughters. You will not be terrified by anything. And so how did she live with Abraham? You see, she lived with Abraham not because she was an archaic old woman who lived in a backward culture where they didn't have iPhones and automobiles. She understood that she was part of the plan too. She understood that God had called her too. And so it was important for her. To live with Abraham in submission because he was the guy that God put in charge and she was the, the helpmeet. Just like Eve was designed to be. She was actually fulfilling a biblical role. And that's what made the mission work. That's what made their lives work. And it was in the context of what God called them. And I see so many believers who seem to not have a clear-cut mission in life. And that hurts us. It really hurts us. Because what happens is I'll see a guy, he's, you know, he sort of disengages from the whole thing. And then what happens is he starts putting his time in other things. He puts his time in work. He puts his time in the bicycle club. He puts his time in all sorts of stuff. And what does the wife do? She does the same stuff. The only thing is, at the end of it, she might wind up with a pink Cadillac. Right? If it's Mary Kay. But anyway. But... The point being is that our mission and our heart is here. Why? Because Jesus is coming back. Because people need to hear the message. And we're the people God has left here to do it. And so in this context, the mission, the Lord's return, has everything to do with this. 
And I just need to ask you, are you living a, a life of purpose? Are you living a life of purpose? Or are the weeds growing up? And that parable of the seed, I read that this week, that's a real killer. I mean, I think that would get me before anything else would. Just becoming distracted. And just saying bearing fruit or not bearing fruit is just simply a normal part of life. I'm not going to sweat and strain anymore about it. It's, it's just that. So let's look at verses 3 and 4. This makes sense if you understand what was happening with Sarah and Abraham. This makes sense if you understand people who are living on mission. It says here, Let not yours be the outward adorning with braiding of hair, decoration of gold, and wearing of fine clothing, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable jewel of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. You know, I'm going to make a quick, quick link here. Men and women both have deep vulnerabilities, but they're in, maybe in different areas. Now, guys can get just as lost in their man cave and, and collecting toys and trucks and boats and things like that. But it's very interesting if you compare this portion of Scripture to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Because what does Paul say to the men? He said, I desire in every place that men should stop grumbling, but lift their hands, their holy hands in prayer to God. They're supposed to be praying that we can work under the radar and get the work done because God wants to redeem people. That has to do with prayer. But men can get sidetracked. So what do men need to do? They need to focus on praying. And you read that context, and what does it say about women? That same context says, and women should not be overly caught up in, you know, God wants you to look good. Your husband wants you to look good. It's good to look good. But not to be obsessed with it. Do you know that we spend... a well, I, I think it's a year, but we spend billions of dollars per year in makeup. I don't, <laughs> frankly, but billions of dollars per year. You know, that's okay, right? But I'm just saying is that some people, if they don't have any other thing in life, what they do. And so all the warning is here is that if you're living on mission, it's okay, but don't. Men, don't get caught up in the things that men get caught up, complaining about the government and what I would do if I... Pray. And women, work in the harvest. And so we have this perfect opportunity here. We have a great church. We have things that we can do here. And when I, uh, whenever I do premarital counseling with people, um, what I usually tell them is they need to start praying about a ministry. What are you two going to get involved in? Because you need something to draw you together in Jesus Christ. And God will bless that. And it keeps a man's head sharp and it keeps a woman's heart sharp. And they start seeing fruit and it just gets better. Now, uh, let's hit those last verses. I want to show you that uh, the context was the plan of redemption all along. Verses 1 and 2. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Uh, you know, it's kind of interesting, right? If you've known someone who has an unbelieving husband, you understand how challenged they are. But if they submit their hearts first to God, 
And see, that's the hard thing, right? It's like, I'm not going to listen to what that bozo says, but what is the context of our lives? Submit yourself first to God, and then ask God what he would have you do. Howard Hendricks tells a story about doing marital counseling with this one woman. And she was uh, apparently some big Bible speaker in the Dallas area, and she's having trouble at home, which wasn't good for having a, uh, being a Bible speaker in the Dallas area. And so he says to her, what is your husband like that you just have a hard time doing for him? And she says, he loves this malodorous soup. It takes all day to cook it, and it stinks up the house. And Hendrick smiles at her and he says, I have an assignment for you. So he sends her home to make the soup. The next week he gets a call from this guy. The guy gets on the phone with Hendrick and he says, what did you do to my wife? She did it! And when she saw the result of that, she knew that she needed to submit first to God and to give him the ability to do with her life what he wanted for his kingdom. Anybody here know who Lee Strobel is? You've heard that name, right? Do you realize that Lee's wife came to Christ first? And it was not easy. He was a, he was a hotshot reporter for the Chicago Sun. He wanted nothing to do with Jesus Christ. He felt that this church had robbed him of his wife. And then who did Lee Strobel become once he gave his life to Christ? He became a minister of that church, and he went on to write several books and everything, and it started with his wife. Because she submitted herself to, the, to God, and she understood the plan of redemption. This isn't about my life, it is about him. And so, let me just say this, in, in bringing this message to, um, to a close here. Uh, we need to realize that submitting to God is not damaging ourselves at all, men or women. When we came to Jesus Christ, and I hope you came to Him like this, you realized that you were lost. You realized that you were helpless. And God, in His wonderful grace, in His great love for us, He was reaching out to us through all sorts of people when we didn't even know it. And He didn't give up on us. We talked about it at the family uh, at Breaking of the Bread this morning. He never gave up on us, no matter who we were. He allowed different people to plant seeds in our lives. So when we came to Him, we weren't hot stuff. We weren't saying, well, God, you know, now that I've become a believer, aren't you lucky to have me on your team? No, see, this is built out of brokenness. This is built out of need. This is built out of His grace in our nothing. And out of Jesus Christ who gave Himself. And if we're going to be disciples of Jesus Christ, we need to be like our Master. Because every disciple, when he is fully trained, man or woman, will be like their master, and he gave everything for us. And it should not be the mark of a disciple to have a bad edge, a grumpy spirit, a listlessness in life, a um, mind being taken in other places. I remember in, in Timothy, Paul says, every soldier on service has to stay away from his civilian affairs because his goal his desire is to please the one who enlisted him. And that's Jesus. And so in terms of how we live our lives, folks, he is coming back. 
And those dark clouds on the horizon mean something different for our neighbors than they do for us because those dark clouds on the horizon have a gold lining on top because that is our Savior coming to wrap up the end of the age. And that may be glorious for us, but with the heart and concern of Jesus Christ, as men and women, as husbands and wives, we need to be on mission. We need to work together so that we can carry the torch forward now in this time. And we're inspired, right? We're joyful. We are powerful, not in ourselves, but we know He's coming back so we can leave it all on the planet. We don't have to take anything with us. This is a wonderful thing. And husbands and wives can have a fantastic relationship. Start praying about how you can work together. There are tons of things you can do in the church here. Ways that you can serve. Ways that you can reach out in your neighborhood. And men, for whatever reason, God has given us the responsibility to know the forecast and to keep that in our hearts and to inspire our wives, and build them up and respect them and understand everything about life. And if they are the weaker vessel, and God says so, they are, and we need to live accordingly with respect and with deep love. And then maybe it will not be so hard for our wives to say, you know what, this is not your plan, this is our plan. And I love Jesus Christ all by myself, and I'm going to serve him, and this is our service together. And they will become daughters of Sarah who don't live in fear, but they hope in the promise of God, and they respect their husbands, and their husbands honor their wives. And we'll get the job done and be a lot of fun. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have taken such care for us. All through your scripture, we are given hope. We read, we're reading Isaiah right now, and it's hard to bump into a passage that doesn't end with the fact that you are going to set everything right, and there is going to be a glorious future. And we have that glorious future, and we, we have it cemented in our hearts because of what Jesus did for us, and we know he's coming back, and we can live like that. We can live expectantly. And at the same time, we have the courage and we have a message to share with the people around us. And Father, because of this message, uh, this passage and Peter writing this, these people suffering, he's talking to them about binding together as husband and wife and, and holding each other strong in Jesus Christ and men to pray fervently. Men to pray fervently. Why? Because the end of the days are here. They have come upon us. What a privilege that we should be standing here at this time. We pray in Jesus' name, for His sake, that You would inspire us to live life boldly, man and woman, for our dear Savior. Amen.